You might catch yourself sliding in and out of the You might catch yourself sliding in and out of the hallucinatory state. Do, just relax and enjoy it. Do, just relax and enjoy it. This is an experiment, this is an experiment in, mind in mind formation. In formation. In formation. Forming, forming, controlling, controlling, operating your, operating mind, and your mind and your brain. Using digital, using digital techniques, techniques to overload, to overload scramble, confuse, confuse, unfocus your mind. I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said uh, uh, he was in favor of, uh, of uh, finding your own self and, and uh, uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I'm in New Mexico to visit the home of Timothy Wiley, a spiritualist and founding member of the Process Church, who used PCP to inspire his artwork and a mythology in which the Garden of Eden's serpent is revealed to be an ancient race of space gypsy philosophers. So this was something, this is a, a realization that you had. You were, well, you, you were on PCP, you picked up a sand dollar and you understood its significance in recording information for well, dolphins. I was, I was in this telepathic bond with the dolphins while this was happening. I give the CIA a total credit for sponsoring and initiating the entire consciousness movement, counterculture events of the 1960s. The CIA funded and supported and uh, encouraged hundreds of young psychiatrists to experiment with this drug. The fallout from that was that the young psychologists began taking it themselves, discovering that it was an intelligence-enhancing, consciousness-raising experience. I know that some of the studies in which the CIA had uh, supported used as subjects people who later became strong proselytizers of LSD. So in, a, in that sense, yes, I think it that did sustain the, uh, the uh, perpetuation of, of, the, of the use of the Everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And today I have two very special guests, the co-host of Subliminal Jihad. I've got Dimitri and Khalid with me. So how are you guys doing? And thanks for coming on the show. I'm well. Happy to be here. Yeah. Doing good. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, I've been listening for a while. I have gone all the way through it, but it took me a little bit to your four-part series, Sus Psychedelics, and there's a lot to cover. But I guess just, you know, before we start getting into the real meat of everything, uh, what made you guys, you know, decide to to cover this? What kind of, like, spurred you guys to uh, 
decide to do this, you know, kind of long format series on the subject? Uh, I think it was a couple of things. Like, as, as I was mentioning to you a little bit uh, before we started recording, like uh, part of it was, I feel, the incredible. We sort of had made some remarks about like our uh, feelings of discomfort around uh, figure uh, Hamilton Morris uh, sort of offhandedly in one of our Q&A episodes, which are kind of, you know, more riff uh, based episodes where we haven't really done too much deep research uh, prior to it. So uh, we kind of just offhandedly expressed uh, a little bit of uh, discomfort around like his persona and sort of his attitude with the psychedelics and and that uh, type of thing. And uh, uh, the hostility that we got in response was like very intense. Um, and that kind of just like, I think like raised our alarm bells a little bit. It's like, why, you know, does this guy inspire such devotion? Like what's going on? with this and uh you know it was also partially like oh wow maybe you know we were really being unfair you know maybe we you know did go too far and sort of expressing this maybe we should have done like more research but i feel like once we actually did sort of delve into the milieu of that person and also the sort of broader hype machine around psychedelics that has been sort of ch- uh, chugging and chugging and uh chugling one might say <laughs> uh but like you know uh, anti-chugling in mm-hmm. uh you know trucking. The, it's trucking yeah it's been trucking yeah it's yeah. definitely that's been that's been trucking very very hard um in uh, recent years and the sort of uh you know mass media and and you know online discourses things like that uh it it kind of really confirmed a lot of our initial uh aversions that we felt uh and yeah it also just was kind of yeah something that i feel like was in the in the ecosystem in the atmosphere that uh i don't know we i guess kind of were uneasy about so we wanted to look into more deeply uh, mm-hmm. lily k ross's series that she did for ny mag um you know was something that was like a big resource for us and like made us uh feel like okay like other people are perceiving this as well you know this is definitely yeah, that, something there that was know? a big jumping off point i think when you found that and then that led us to symposia the sort of nonprofit news website of academics that like we discovered had been on their own i guess not so subliminal jihad against hamilton morris and this whole like psychedelics industry and i think if i recall correctly that when we set out to do it earlier this year that and and this happens a lot and sometimes like our favorite i think some of my favorite series comes out of this where we're like okay we're gonna do like a sus psychedelics thing and, you know, maybe it'll be like a two-parter because we often do two-parters. <laughs> yeah. And then right. once we recorded like the first day of the first two parts and barely got through like a quarter of the stuff that we'd wanted to really cover. And and I just knew in the back of my head that like there was more that we could keep on researching. That's basically how it, it just ballooned into like this four-part, I don't know, 12-hour series uh, <laughs> that, it, that it did. And... And uh, and we were able to, I, I think, it, as we went deeper into that journey, we uh, incorporated, you know, stuff from our own personal experiences with psychedelics as well. You know, I, I talked about that, I think, in the third part about my own experiences, um, because I think part of that, like, backlash we got from certain, certain quarters uh, about, you know, uh, casting aspersions on Hamilton Morris is that you know, sometimes people accuse us of being like church ladies or something like that um, because we've been skeptical of, say, like the 60s counterculture and, 
you know, people like Timothy Leary or like the Grateful Dead and, uh, you know, potential nefarious connections or just darker shadow dimensions, you could say, of um, of certain types of like countercultural phenomenon. So uh, so I definitely wanted to make clear that like I wasn't coming from a place of, you know, a non-experience with these substances and even some of the more kind of paratherapeutic settings that have become really, really popular in the last five to 10 years. Uh, I, I dabbled a little bit in that as well, like uh, about a, a decade ago. And, you know, there were things that had stuck in my craw, like in the back of my mind that I always, you know, ruminated on over the years of like, huh, that was kind of sus that one time, you know, like just little things that when you're young and you're kind of more naive and open to everything, which I think a lot of people who enter into the psychedelics world uh, are, you know, uh, you can, <laughs> I think what we found is that, you know, it is definitely a world full of grifters and charlatans and, you know, maybe shamans who aren't quite what they say they are, you could say. And, um, and that dynamic has like, massively accelerated and uh i think we were also surprised by just like the degree of mainstream acceptance in a very short amount of time um how psychedelics went from being you know legitimately countercultural and illegal and you know kind of pushed to the margins of you know not considered respectable and then this huge respectability push you know with people like michael pollan but also from like joe rogan and now getting into like these politicians, sometimes like conservative Republican politicians yeah, that are pushing it's it. Bipartisan uh, consensus that like we need to like you know just push the psychedelics through like as quickly as possible. Like yeah, AOC you know, and Matt Gates co-sponsoring to save, bills to save the veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, the veteran and the entanglement with the military industrial complex is also something that like I think we had a little bit of an inkling of going into it, but then we discovered like oh okay like y'all really love the military and it's just yeah it's like endless endless rabbit holes and uh and meanwhile this hype machine just you know pushes forward like undeterred and uh, i think in the discourse around it you get a lot of like you don't understand man you must have never taken lsd if like you think you know and stuff like that and it's like "Mm, no i have but you know at the same time like i i think the utopian promises like wrapped up in it are actually in a way like almost more dangerous than the substances themselves if that makes sense there's two like dimensions to it and i think that like you know personally i think that there a lot of the discourse around the substances themselves and like the enlightenment or like the self-improvement they offer is like so incredibly overblown and is part of like this hype machine but even like leaving aside, even if you do believe that these drugs can like get you in contact with God, which I think the opposite is much more likely personally, like and maybe that uh, stance like bleeds through. But even whatever your view is on the substances themselves, I think that like, you know, reasonable people can, you know, if they disagree about that, they can still sort of see the uh, negative potentialities of people like Peter Thiel's like compass pathways and like they're maneuvering like around the subject, you know, or the sort of uh, in uh, the dishonesty of people like maps with like the, the way their trials have gone and the abuses of people that have happened like in the psychedelic trials of, of MDNA, MDMA and things like that. So like, well, even if you're like, 
generally have like a positive attitude to the lords of drugs uh themselves like you know whatever you want to say like i guess you know maybe i don't as much as others that might bleed through but i think that even people who uh you know do like them can agree that this current sort of hype machine is uh maybe running off the rails a little bit in certain ways and is not being like proceeded with carefully right uh you know and the power or the appeal of these substances has a lot to do with that there are like you know they the people acknowledge that they're set and setting you know there needs to be like uh care applied and especially substances like ayahuasca you know there's like all these uh it, so when people talk about the traditional uh usage of them you know there's a lot of caution that's usually applied here but then you have a massive sort of bloated tourist industry developed around these drugs that creates like an incredible demand and then like potential for uh you know sort of uh, again like dishonesty manipulation abuse um it's yeah like uh i think that a lot of people even people who like you know might disagree with with me or, or, or with the dimitri in some respects about like the you know their views on the substances themselves or whatever their practices involving them they maybe could even agree with the 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 message of you know let's like let's slow down like let's evaluate you know like mm -hmm. we're we're there's no need to like you know power this through well, um, that's why that's why i think symposia's work is especially val valuable and like shout out to symposia everyone should check out their website they have a lot of good articles we use a lot of them as sources in our series but most of them are pro personally pro psychedelics like they've all done various psychedelics i think most of them maybe not all but most of them still do believe that like they should be decriminalized they should be studied in like a, a maybe a, a more sober kind of um you know clinical environment than maps but nonetheless should be studied for their various benefits and how they work and all these other things and that they you know do have positive aspects but they're they're almost like representing the contingent of old heads that are that you know really did take the kind of um uh i don't know the power of these psychedelics uh seriously and also like are aware of like how they could be misused you know and that's why i think there's like there's always informal cultural kind of practices around like you know mixing certain drugs or doing certain drugs and like you know safety harm reduction things like that um but they can say it with a lot more credibility because they aren't just like bible thumping prohibitionists that are you know they're not cops like you know they they can really speak to it uh authentically and that's a lot harder for the kind of like hamilton morris's to refute uh though refute it they they do try to do constantly in like very snide ways yes and people like that will hug a difficult road because like you know it's yeah they kind of need they still have like a commitment to the drug or and even partially like to the drugs or even to the culture like around them but i think you know they're uh but they also you know they have been very critical and very like reflective about it and there definitely needs to be like a very searching sort of inquest into this uh aspects of this culture that are now being like very aggressively mainstream because a lot of them as i think is one of the strengths of like you know the work that uh we and others have done like a lot of that sort of uh the culture around these drugs is very toxic 
you know, and a lot of the things that you're seeing barefoot now, like sexual abuse happening as clinical trials, you know, people being traumatized, these types of things, uh, you know, the prominent uh, sort of uh, psychedelic influencers being complicit in these types of things. Like uh, that is the inevitable result of like a longstanding sort of culture around uh, that has existed around these things that, you know, is not really you know uh even though there's a gloss of like oh this is the science this is the science you know and the the opponents are being painted as sort of the irrational uh you know uh religious people um really like there's a lot of mysticism and a lot of belief and a lot of faith that's bound up in the way that these things are seen and because people you know have certain credentials or they have uh you know are able to represent themselves in a certain way as being like serious people uh, you know, that element of it isn't fully appreciated, how much of it does have to do with, uh, you know, belief and personal investment and faith. I certainly think that there's a lot of deception that's kind of going around the current talk about psychedelics, because like, for instance, like with weed, I do think that weed can have, you know, certain medicinal purposes and stuff like that. But I know that as a tactic, you know, to get it legalized, that people kind of you know, uh, had these grandiose promises of, you know, all the benefits that weed can provide for medical reasons. And, you know, I see kind of like the same thing going on with psychedelics, you know, and so like that, you know, the, their use as a therapeutic tool and stuff like this is kind of being overblown as a way to get their foot into the door. But truly what they're more interested in is kind of like this, you know, psychedelic utopia and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I mean, something that I, you know, saw in your guys' series was that, I mean, many of the people kind of at the forefront of this movement, when they're talks talking amongst themselves, They'll even admit that, you know, that this is you yeah, know, kind absolutely. of a strategic way to go about it. So this kind of intuitive sense of, you know, that, you know, of, of what was going on, you know, was kind of confirmed by that. And I also think, you know, before we, you know, move on to the next thing, just the criticism that, you know, you have to be like a church lady um, who's never done psychedelics in order to have any kind of gripe with the, the community or even the substance themselves is kind of funny to me. Um, just because, um, you know, I know that, you know, you guys talk a little bit about this series, but, you know, also, I mean, a lot of my gripes, both with, you know, the psychedelic community and with them in and of themselves is from my experience, you know, <laughs> with them, well, yeah. you know, so I yeah, mean, it's exactly. kind of, exactly. yeah, it's just a funny thing to assume off the bat that, you know, um, it's, you know, very, uh, uh, condescending, you know, that you, you must, you know, just be this re- repressed church lady. If you have, you know, any kind of criticism to level, regardless of what you might, you know, if you even care if other people do them in their personal life and stuff, you know, cause m- more what I'm interested in is, you know, talking about, you know, these kind of, you know, mass societal claims and whatnot that are promised from mm-hmm. this community, but perhaps something that would be good to kind of get into next is, you guys have already mentioned this, but you guys talk, you know, early on in the series about this nonprofit symposia. So could you talk a little bit about this group? Who exactly are they and what exactly is it that they are bringing, you know, to light and into the discourse when it comes to psychedelics? 
Yeah. So Symposia, uh, you can find their website. It's uh, it's P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A dot org. Um, you know, like Psy, Symposia, whatever. But they are a registered nonprofit that basically functions as, pretty much as a news website. I think they also have a podcast and they've uh, co-produced uh, several or they co-produced, I think, the uh, the New York magazine uh, cover story series uh, with Lily K. Ross, who is a member. And I'm blanking on some of the other names of like their main contributors, uh, contributors right now. I follow them on Twitter. Uh, most of them are on there. But basically, they exist uh, to yeah, provide a kind of like a critical side of this whole of, of all of this psychedelics research and the psychedelics renaissance. I think they've been around for 10 years or maybe a little bit longer. And I think they've actually become more skeptical as they've gone on. I think I think they might have even been doing events with Hamilton Morris like back in maybe 2012, but then gradually sort of had a falling out as uh, the what they call I, I don't know if they coined this term, but they use it a lot. Uh, the corporadelic renaissance really, you know, exploded. And now they're very strong uh, critics of all of like the kind of, you know, shady business aspects and, uh, you know, the the overblown claims and shoddy research and, of course, like the sexual abuse and blurred lines of lots of Me Too kind of weird stuff, in some cases going back all the way to like the 70s. Um and they have a, you know, they they have a pretty prolific output, and they yeah, they're basically on this exact beat like all the time. Like, they are. This is their know, main thing. Oh yeah, so dedicated to yeah. Like, yeah, like, I just found the, a couple of them. Is Brian Normand, Russell Hausfeld is another one. He's been doing a good series about like psychedelics in the military, and they generally have like a pretty. I would probably classified as like an academic left wing kind of position so you know they're critical of corporations they're also very critical of right wing and almost like fascist adjacent people really embracing psychedelics and in some cases like yeah i mean like peter Thiel is somebody they've you know zeroed in on very aggressively because he's funding you know several psychedelic startups including one that hamilton morris works for so, you know, they, they're just really on this warpath. They have pretty good investigative journalism. I mean, we found so many nuggets that are amazing that we maybe will like get into later, like how, you know, so many psychedelic startups are like the sort of reverse buyout husks of like African mining companies, just like weird, weird, weird shit. And, um, and they've been, you know, increasingly kind of attacked, slandered, you know, uh, people uh, i think hamilton morris we put some of the audio in our series but he gave this incredibly snide uh, presentation at microdose in 2022 where uh, symposia was actually banned from attending like they were somebody found like a you know do not let these people in list with like all the symposia people on yeah. it so that was kind of a big deal where they're like okay wow you guys are so welcoming and you know progressed because of your psychedelic you know wisdom but like you're acting like the pettiest little you know sus lords ever and i mean he he basically hamilton spent his entire speech 
like basically attacking Symposia and like laughing and snarking at them without ever naming them, which uh, I think is a a, a, cla- a a common tactic of him and people like him, um, where uh, you know he basically so they they tore him apart. I think in a video where they had to go basically line by line because there were so many kind of straw men and false equivalencies and just outright lies about all kinds of things uh that hamilton uh was pushing so yeah that's pretty much who symposia is like this is their beat they are personally mostly pro psychedelic people who are kind of lefty academics who uh, are very very critical of the corporatelic renaissance and all of its manifestations Okay, so what exactly is the corporadelic uh, renaissance or, or revival? Um, because that is something that I found very interesting. And I guess I'll ask another question piggybacking off of this after I let you guys answer that is, are psychedelics officially for squares now? And the cool thing to do is to not do them or the counterculture thing. I certainly mm-hmm. agree with that. Um, I certainly agree that the the cool thing is to is to not do them. Um, I think that yeah, like I agree with the uh, traditional, the general uh, traditional Orthodox uh, Sufi stance on uh, substances like that that they're like uh, shaitanic illusions uh, and even divine illusions aren't uh, what we're after. Like in terms of uh, the objectives that people who take these drugs tend to have like you're off after truth uh not illusions um so yeah uh for me personally like i think that um the you know i'm i was as you know since i was thinking about getting back into this topic something that is always stuck in my mind from that episode is uh the interview that we dug up with sasha shulgin who was like a huge you know figure in the sort of uh, earlier psychedelics uh, subculture and, you know, in sort of he synthesized a lot of like, very famous psychedelics uh, for the first mm-hmm. time. He was like a hero of, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he was a hero of Hamilton Morris's. And I think we found this interview of him where they're asking him kind of about his spiritual views. And he, uh, you know, this this brilliant, you know, very level-headed scientist who was all about, you know, just like, uh, the, the seriousness and the, the, the scientific perspective and expanding the boards of the human mind goes into this bizarre rant about how uh, he took a drug that gave him the power to like control the mind of a cat and to make hoses move with his, like gave him telekinesis basically and like other powers. And, uh, you know, he was like, is that what God is? <laughs> because then I have experienced God. Or what? It's like, no, you're not a God, like, because you can make a cat scared of you. Like, anyone can do that. Um, like, yeah, he called you know, it running the show when you take such yeah. a big dose that you end up in, like, God mode. And yeah. there's just a lot of, I mean, Sasha Shulgin, you could go all day about just the contradictions of that guy, um, who I've always been fascinated by because he grew up, like, 10 15 minutes away from me like the place where he invented 2cb and resynthesized ecstasy in the 70s and all that shit was like practically in my backyard in like the east bay suburbs and i sort of never even knew it you know so i've always been like who is this guy i mean this guy has had like a massive influence and he's very lionized these days especially by hamilton but yeah when you start going into like 
I mean, just the things he says in interviews, you're like, huh? And then you look at like his decades long cozy relationship with the DEA, his membership at Bohemian fucking Grove, you know, which is like where he was allegedly bringing these research chemicals and dosing the most rich and powerful like right wing people in the Western world. Uh, yeah. You know, and then that He's never a gets culture hero. And yet like a total collaborator with like the DEA and like all the people who were like, you know, the greatest villains of the drug war that all these people like, you know, that's what they'll invoke to be like, oh, you know, you just want you're on the side of the drug war if you're raising any kind of skepticism about this. But it's always been like a dialectical thing, in fact that like the people who have been developing these drugs have the same way the CIA and crack it's the same relationship yet for some reason or a very similar one I don't want to make a total equivalency but it's very similar where there's always been an investment in these things that is uh, counterbalanced to like the expressed hostility towards them Um, and yet some people have a blind spot when it comes to like these particular drugs because I mean we speculate about this like you know speculate about it now like I feel like they're it's because of the feelings people get from the drugs partially um, and also the sort of feelings they get from the sort of love bombing that goes on in the psychedelic community that's sort of amplified mm-hmm. by the drugs. And a lot of like early psychedelic influencers and psychedelic influencers today will acknowledge this. They'll acknowledge the ability of these drugs to like change your perceptions and to make you like, you know, feel love towards everyone and how that can be used to manipulate people, you know, um, so, or to sort of lose your fear response or certain, um, you know, uh, sense of caution about certain things. Like, but yeah, um, it's, there's this, uh, yeah, there, like it, it's always cut both ways. You know, all these people have been the, not like the heroes fighting against the, the drug war often. They've been like, you know, very much uh, implicated with the people who like are, you know, uh, rounding up people for being on these drugs. Mm-hmm. And he he basically never got raided, you know, as a result of that. So, you know, he was able to he was left yeah. in peace he by had the a DEA. Very good working relationship with them. Yeah. Have did you guys mention William Leonard Pickard or are you guys familiar with him? I don't know if you guys mentioned him in your series. That was one thing that I had researched and we didn't have time to get into mm-hmm. it. But then we found stuff later on that was absolutely bonkers about him. There, there's actually a ton about William uh, Leonard Picard that, um, if I recall correctly, was he also like a trust fund kid? He was a trust fund kid and he was a student of Alexander Shulgin. Um, and that's why I brought him up, but then he would eventually be convicted in the largest LSD bust in all of history. Mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly how much it was that he was busted with, but, um, I want to say that he, oh, go ahead. Yeah. He was making LSD in, in abandoned air force nuclear missile silo in the midwest yes, right right yeah I in kansas about, like there's a whole other like messed up thing around this guy too right like there's wasn't so there, like, much around this. that he was implicated in am i thinking of the right guy you're thinking that, like, of the partner? you're thinking of the young guy you called sent me a story after we did sus psychedelics that involved picard and this other guy he was working with and this kidnapping of like a young man that was injected with like a bazillion psychedelic drugs and tortured for like six days and then like turned loose. And Oh, you know what it was? It was that one of the 
girls who was like this raver girl who yeah, was hanging Crystal, out right her name was like crystal something yeah crystal, crystal uh k-r-y-s uh um t-y-l uh mm-hmm. and that's how you spell it. yeah crystal cole crystal um, cole that's right yeah, that's right she, and these other people she was basically like in a relationship kind of with uh multiple of these people including the person ended up being murdered but he like was sort of manipulated into being sort of like a weird test subject for this like sadistic uh, I, don't, I don't even want to call it an experiment. It was just like torture uh, and attempted murder. Um, I'll try and, to like, find the name of the guy that was like profiled in this article who was like the torturer, but he was working with Picard. But also, the article you found was just full of things that like this guy is the biggest like Fed informant of all time, and like probably sold out. You know, a lot of other people, including maybe Picard to the DEA to like get himself off. But then I think he murdered somebody and then went to jail after he got like he got sort of off. uh, He got let off the hook for everything. Um, There was also I think it was maybe Gordon Todd Skinner. Was that the other guy? Yeah. Gordon Todd Skinner. I think that was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, there was another actually angle to the Picard thing that. I had researched before we recorded the episodes, but we just didn't get to it. And that's about a guy named John Halpern, who is like a very big figure, I think, in the whole maps milieu. And this is actually like kind of a big controversy in the early 2000s because Rick Doblin was like very buddy buddy with John Halpern, like in the 2000s. But then it came out that John Halpern snitched on Picard to the DEA and was one of the people that got him basically arrested and then Doblin like continued to work with him and a lot of the kind of old hippies that were map supporters in the early 2000s were like I think posting on the maps forums back then like yo what the fuck Rick Doblin like this guy's a snitch like this isn't cool you know whatever and uh, I think some people you know some people were, were protesting uh you know Halpern uh, for being a snitch and things and Doblin gave like a very like wishy-washy kind of oh well you know like I forget exactly what he said but uh, classic Rick Doblin like he just sort of uh, muddled his way through it and I think you know continued basically to support Halpern and uh, I think to this day like Halpern is like back kind of in the game like uh doing stuff actually yeah because i found an article um about john halpern like a very laudatory article in the scientific american website in 2017 the promise of lsd microdoses and other psychedelic medicines psychiatrist john halpern discusses the psychotherapeutic potential of peyote ayahuasca psilocybin mdma and other psychedelics and it's a whole profile of like how amazing this guy is and all the good work he's doing and stuff and it's like okay he's just like a huge dea snitch and like that's you know been buried so yeah there's a lot uh going on with that that whole picard case uh very very weird well, on multiple levels yeah i wanted to bring it up because i found some other stuff about it unfortunately my memory sucks so there's other interesting things that i can't remember but like here's like one of the things for instance that i found um gordon todd skinner so uh when him when he was introduced because uh pickard had another accomplice named clyde aperson and they Mm -hmm. apparently pickard and skinner were introduced to each other because Pickard would hang out with 
all of these different, you know, uh, sus in their own right, LSD chemist from, you know, back in like the days of like the Grateful Dead and Orange Sunshine and all of that. And was known to have Tim connections. To, yeah, yeah, to have connections to some of them. But it's actually rumored that Skinner and Picard would meet at the former home of none other than Carolyn and Jerry Garcia. So there's the uh, Grateful That's Dead. Right. I remember reading that. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. And I think some of the I think Rick Doblin has talked about how maybe he took Ibogaine for the first time at Jerry Garcia's former house uh, up at Stinson Beach with, uh, I think, with Stanislav Groff, maybe. Um, Or maybe it was. No, I think it was with Leo Zeff, the secret chief. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're all I mean, they're all connected to each other, basically, going back to the 60s. Um, Oh, yeah. Nicholas Sand. That that was that was one that uh, Picard was big with in the early 70s too yeah it's very very similar to something that uh before you know we were recording we were just chatting a little bit about this this topic and it's i I find it to be very similar to the ufo thing where people sort of represent themselves as being like you know sort of disinterested almost skeptical actors who just are being forced by the strength of evidence to like come out and like tell everybody that like the grays are coming and like there are gods and like we must bow down to them but like really they're just all like very very deeply invested like not only emotionally but often financially like in this stuff and like you know so they have like uh they like there's they have a huge conflict of interest basically like it's not you know what it uh appears to be uh, or what is being represented to us like that's just uh what they think will again kind of like you said that's the has the greatest odds of getting it adopted is to kind of spin it as being like, oh, you know, it helps veterans or but they'll you know, they'll acknowledge that's like a strategy. Right. And they don't even want to hype the medicalization aspect to it or lose sight of what it's really about, which, as you said, is like about how wonderful psychedelics are and like how great these drugs, you know, what the great potential they have like to awaken people's consciousness or whatever, you know, Uh so it's yeah, it's a very similar phenomenon. And the like subculture is similarly like close-knit and incestuous um well that's part of what i find like so frustrating with the uh this whole push for you know the legalization of psychedelics is not even the proposal in and of itself but it's the duplicity and how they go about it and it's also one of the same things that kind of frustrates me with like honestly some proponents of uh you know like uh Uh, weed and stuff like i don't want people getting you know locked up for weed or something but i'm so sick of you know people telling me that it is a fix for everything and it's like i am familiar with the stuff and 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 it's not and it's not only that but it's probably you know not great to be doing you know um all the time that a a lot but anyways that's that's getting like yeah it's it's very similar to me but i think that it's worth thinking about right like because it's there definitely has been like a cultural shift and it's like crazy to me like how people will like you know admit that like they you know just need weed to do certain things they need it you know and like i've definitely been a stoner at different points in my life i know like the feeling of like oh i can't watch this movie like i without smoking weed you know and it's like well if you need weed to like do this to spend hours doing this thing then like maybe you just shouldn't be doing it, you know? And I feel like that is a dynamic that definitely exists with weed where like, you know, the, uh, 
the sort of mainstreaming of it like is, is something to be aware of you know and i think that's part of the reason why like uh weed has been embraced uh in recent years because it has that component to it where it can make anything interesting it can make you receptive to all sorts of things it can make you tolerate you know it makes you pat this is something that's known about weed for a while you know like i it has it ma- makes you euphoric it makes you again this is sort of a point that i was reflecting on during our uh episode that yeah well, we were just discussing but uh there's a sort of idea that weed gives you better ideas or makes you more creative and I strongly feel that that's not true. And what it actually does is make you feel more excited about your ideas, right? And makes you feel like have a better image of yourself as someone who's having all these, you know, great ideas. But the ideas themselves, I do not feel are improved. Like as someone who used to smoke weed all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that it doesn't take like too much to like consider. And I mean, you always say the same thing about alcohol. You know, I'm definitely very, very anti-alcohol, you know, uh, strongly opposed to it in in all in all ways i'll i will you know acknowledge like alcohol is worse than weed uh but uh the reason why people embrace this substance like it's not because like it's everyone's best interest to be on it all the time and like it's because it's not in everyone's best interest to be on it all the time and because being on it all the time will make you tolerate or be receptive to a much wider range of things than you ordinarily would be and I think that the same model, like where it's like, oh, you know, it's okay to like just vape a little bit of weed like every day, like all the time, like, you know, and this weed is like, you know, some people will dispute this, but it's also like sort of conventional wisdom that the weed now, there's no comparison between with what it was. And also uh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I personally feel that the method of sort of uh, weed consumption, like the ease, like the sort of odorless like vaping and things like that that also like is an accelerant to uh you know just taking it all the time just sipping on that vape all day i think that that same sort of attitude like where it's just like accepted that people are just going to be stoned constantly like that same thing is going to be like i mean it already is in some subcultures and in some sectors like that you can just microdose all the time you know, which yeah, Silicon Valley, the Bay <laughs> like, Area, that's become there was just a Wall Street Journal article speaking of like new things that have come out. There was that article that came out like a week or two ago about how like, uh, did you know that like Elon Musk does ketamine all the time and Sergey Brin like does, you know, LSD semi regularly and how this is becoming like I, I've sort of known about this for a little while, but just like psychedelic use is really kind of out in the open now in a way that it, it it wasn't even like five years ago in in particularly in silicon valley and in san francisco to the point now where they're basically you know like it it's almost formally accepted in like an hr sense in these companies that you know you which on the, on the one hand is like fine like i don't want companies like sniffing around and like you know people's lives and whatnot but on the other hand, like imagining just how normal it's become. And I said in the series that like I had heard from somebody I know that there are a lot of like lawyers in San Francisco doing microdosing like on a very regular basis. And that just kind of blew my mind because I'm like, what about doing the job of being a lawyer is made like easier or more pleasurable by being on 
shrooms or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it just seemed like though, if like lawyers, they like amphetamines and alcohol and like cocaine. Like that's you know that that sort of fuels their their whole thing. But but like acid, what or like DMT? They're like vaping DMT in like their law office. Like what is going on up there? You know, and so I think you know they're it's much more kind of like normalized now in the way that weed weed was almost a test case or like a trial balloon for what they're doing with the stronger psychedelics now. And like you said, call it uh, the potency is one thing that, uh, that I think we, we like want to be vigilant about, especially with like the strong psychedelics, but, but like even with weed, it's true that, you know, it's a cliche, but I think it's accurate that, you know, this isn't like your your boomer dad's weed that like you buy at the weed store these days. It is, you know, it's all, I think, hydroponic. It's all like GMO weed, basically. And it's, you know, it is grown specifically just like any other cash crop in America to like maximize profit, max to maximize profit and potency and like get you as fucked up as possible and yes you know and, and so there's one level where you know every you know it used to be normal for i think in the 70s i keep hearing that like the thc percentage of like average weed was you know maybe three four five percent which you know sounds like just criminally low today and i think maybe about a decade ago it was like 12 to 15 percent was kind of like your california weed median for thc and now like Good luck finding anything under like 28%. Like, and most of it, in fact, like if you buy the cheaper stuff, sometimes it's like 35, 40, 45%. It's like, what's going on here? This is like moonshine weed or something, you know? Yeah. Like, and I think like we still haven't even like, we like our understanding of like the long-term effects of like regular cannabis use because like you know and this is also like an effect of like you know it's uh, stigmatization and things like that you know that does play a role but like we kind of like shifted from like the reefer madness stuff to this like pollyannist like you know rose-colored idea that like as you as you said like it's gonna cure everything you know it's like there's nothing for one like the cognitive dissonance and like the sort of delusional uh, aura, like, or, or this sort of delusional, like, discourse around weed, like, it's really, like, something I feel like is important to Pierce. Just, like, the idea that, like, weed is addictive. People will still argue with you that it's not addictive. Like, I'm sorry. It's addictive. <laughs> like, it is. You know, like, it's might not be, like, quote-unquote, like, chemical. It's, like, similar to porn. Similar to porn. Mm -hmm. People can acknowledge Gambling, I think that porn is addictive. Right? Yeah. Um, it's similar. I, I mean, I don't even want to say that there isn't a chemical component to the addictiveness of weed, because I don't really know for sure. And I think that it's something that there's actually an incentive to not even, you know, we we see this again and again with other things like cigarettes, you know, when like people were in denial about this type of thing. It's a huge industry and like no one wants to hear it. So like there's no incentive to like investigate it. It's like how there's no incentive to go investigate the deep ocean unless you're going to go to the wreck of the Titanic. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's no incentive yeah. to look into the effects of weed unless you're talking about how great it is and how, you know, and I, but I really think it's like an invisible thing. Like for instance, you know, this is like a pet thing of mine. So, you know, I'm going to get up something in a second, but I, you know, I think that it might be like people, for instance, when like mass shootings happen, you know, and I'm not saying this is the only factor. However, like, I think that it is something that certainly affects one's mental state and mental health, you know, to be like constantly in a haze of really potent weed, 
you know, that is a sign or a contributing factor of like bad mental health, right? So mental health is at play in these mass shootings, but it's amazing to me how like people, you know, and I think it's absolutely right to talk about like gun laws and other things like that. But it's, you know, it's amazing how the fact that like a lot of these people are like hardcore stoners, like never comes up. And I think, I don't know, I feel like I can observe it anecdotally, like just in my own life, people just having like since like, you know, weed became legal and sort of was rolled out where I live. I've just noticed, like, I've known people who have had, like, psychotic breaks, you know, and I've specifically, seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think specifically with those pens, those pens, see, that that's another thing where you almost have to throw out, I know that used to be a canard that, you know, basically, like, like they've, you know, if, if only the government would let us do, like, clinical trials on weed, we would totally prove that it has medicinal benefits, and then occasionally they would do some kind of things where it's like, oh, it helps cancer patients like retain their appetite or something like that. And and while I think that that's probably true, and maybe now they have done some like clinical things, uh, I don't know, it's almost like you have to throw out all the, any study that was done before like the 2000s, you just have to throw out because it's like comparing Bud Light and like Everclear, you know, in terms of potency, like, you know, it, like hard everyone can acknowledge that hard liquor and light beer are kind of two different things right like mm-hmm. in terms of the quantity that you're supposed to take in terms of one can kill you very quickly if you drink like way too much of it and or just really fuck you up and but with weed it's kind of like ah whatever like pick your poison man like you know just smoke it uh, or like do a dab like do a whole gram dab of like this ultra wax like thing that is like 99%, you know, with like a beautiful <laughs> yeah. like fucking sends you to another planet or, you know, some of these heavy edibles because it metabolizes differently when you eat it that can like really, I think honestly, the worst trips I've ever had in my entire life on anything have been like eating an edible that was too strong. And it's like, I don't even, I, I wouldn't even touch. No, it's it true. Anymore. I remember I there was the like worst this feeling. Inst- there was this Instagram influencer, like uh, what the hell was her name? Ga- uh, Gabby Hanna who had like a meltdown like a couple months or a year ago and started talking about how she was Jesus and how she was God. And everyone thought that she was having like, you know, she was bipolar or something like that. And, uh, you know, was trying to get like a wellness check for her. And later on, you know, after it kind of died down and some people were saying like, oh, you know, because I guess she was saying some offensive stuff during the time. And they were like, oh, you know, this is just for attention. She's trying to eat, et cetera, et cetera. And like after the whole thing died down, I remember her saying it was because like I ate edibles, like that's what did it. And everyone was very dismissive of it. And I'm like, no, I 100% believe that that caused this. Like, I really do think that 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 can happen. You know, it, it wasn't like, it, you know, can. ruined her mental state forever. But like, I think that like habitually, if like you don't recognize the problem, like for some it can. And like the like the idea that this is like an antidepressant and that's how like, you know, microdosing is going to be seen as well. Like it's just like an antidepressant or something. But in fact, I think weed at least is certainly a depressant. <laughs> like it is not something that's going to like improve your mental state in the long term, in my view. You know, and it can exacerbate anxieties like that. that people have and, yeah. and whatnot. And, and I'll Absolutely. just talk from personal experience because I think that this is all important stuff to highlight because you know, you know, people would like to accuse us that, you know, by being the, the church ladies um, that, you know, we're doing the real harm. 
But I think that there's a lot of real harm that comes from underplaying, you know, how serious these substances are and the effect that they have. Like I had a close family member who um, was in his 50s and he uh, started getting into weed. He got a medicinal card. He was smoking weed all the time and he started getting into more just stronger and stronger weeds you know went from the weeds to the vapes to the wax to like rick simpson oil which is like this like basically black sludge which is like the most distilled type of weed that you can get Mm -hmm. and at a little bit over 50 years old he got the early onset of um, a type of alzheimer's called lewy body alzheimer's and he had to um be in a mental hospital for a little bit and at the mental hospital um you know the the doctor said that they basically keep getting people who come in with the early onset of you know not just schizophrenia which is you know kind of more widely known but also things like alzheimer's and stuff and i mean this was someone who was smoking tons of weed and and the the difference between when he was on it and when he would get off it was just light night and day, you know, just completely different. And he was one of these people who, you know, you know, God gave us this plant. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's from, it's from the earth, you know, like so many other things that are just great to consume. Um, Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. but you know, I mean, that that was kind of of poisonous plants too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, opium comes from the earth. I mean, all kinds of shit comes from the earth and you shouldn't yeah. go, you know, ingesting yeah. all of it. Cyanide comes from the earth. Like snake venom comes from the earth or you know, it comes from snakes, but they come from the earth. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and, and so, I mean, I think that by things. downplaying, you know, the, the, the seriousness of, of these and, and the fact that, you know, yeah, I mean, there's all this talk that it's not addictive. And I think that when they say it's not addictive, they don't even mean chemically addictive. They mean you just literally don't get a physical dependence on it. Like you're not going to go through violent, you know, heroin style withdrawals, you know, yeah. coming off mm-hmm. of weed. But then the people who like to tell you that, you know, uh, you know, smoke weed on a, you know, multiple time a day basis. And hey, I used to be one of those people too. So, you know, I'm not, you know, on my you know moral mm-hmm. high horse right now but yeah i think that's all you know very important stuff to to highlight and so i guess to steer the conversation you know kind of back into uh you know psychedelics and and all of this stuff is so i think that one group that is kind of like pivotal to talk about when we are discussing psychedelics is maps and it's a group that you cover a lot during the uh the the course of your guys's series and i think that they're a group that also illustrate a lot of these stories of you know whether it be the um the sexual abuse that is going on in some of these psychedelic circles or if it you know even be that some of these people have ties to military intelligence that they it just kind of highlights a lot of uh you know the more sinister side of of this whole world of psychedelics so um, could you tell us a little bit about maps? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
well, they're definitely at like the forefront of this like whole thing i feel like they're the ones who are like the most like out there uh but it's quite like an octopus of uh connections yeah um, yeah i mean yeah. it basically started with this guy rick doblin um mm-hmm. who got kind you of might who, know him from joe rogan it was commonly on joe rogan commonly uh, on joe rogan but on marion williamson he's been i don't know if he was ever on oprah but uh but he's he is the face of kind of you know psychedelic legalization and i guess you know he was like this kid who was a vietnam draft dodger and then kind of got into psychedelics like in the early 70s and uh, i think eventually moved to california and like fell in with some of these original old heads um i don't know exactly when he met alexander shulgin but it may have been in like the late 70s early 80s but uh long story short he starts to he somehow comes across shulgin and mdma and that is kind of like the main drug that kind of uh necessitates like the creation of maps in the mid 80s and it was still underground in the early 80s so god there was like a, a seminarian a catholic seminarian or a priest named michael clegg who uh i still don't know why but like discovered ecstasy and then started selling it in dallas nightclubs and that's when it first became like a party drug. And then I think Senator Lloyd Benson found out about it and flipped out and uh, ran, decided to kind of, you know, schedule hearings in Congress and try to get the DEA to schedule it. So Rick Doblin, uh, in anticipation of maybe MDMA getting outlawed, I think he founded the Earth Metabolic Design Laboratories, um, interestingly named, um, a nonprofit that was basically out of like this Esalen Institute circle that he was running with. Um, I forget exactly who was on the board at that time, but a lot of familiar faces like pop up again and again, starting around this time. And so the uh, EMDL, I think lobbied Congress to not make uh, MDMA illegal or make it schedule one, but then that failed. It was made illegal. And then, you know, after that, Doblin morphed the EMDL into like the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies maps, I think in 1985 and, um, and kind of from like the sort of home base of the Esalen Institute and big Sur, and, uh, and proceeded from there to kind of become like this lobbyist though. I think in the late eighties, he spent a little time going to the uh, JFK school of government at Harvard I think we covered this in our series. And uh, I think he had a little bit of like an interaction with the CIA where they almost like headhunted him for to work for them. But then he said that the CIA wanted him to help create psychological profiles of foreign leaders. And that just wasn't his bag, man. So he just uh, <laughs> didn't end up working for the CIA. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and and went back to being a, you know, illegal psychedelic proselytizer as a full-time <laughs> job. Um, yeah. And yeah, so then he sort of was doing that throughout the 90s. And of course, like, you know, this is kind of going on at the same time as like the rave kind of culture and like the techno culture and everything that really exploded in the late 80s and early 90s. And so... You know, I, I think you know. I think he was optimistic uh, in terms of getting, you know, XC. But I, but actually, still in the late '90s, there was kind of some backlash against it. There was this whole kind of meme about 
ecstasy put holes uh, puts holes in your brain uh like mtv promoted this idea oprah promoted this idea and uh, a lot of politicians uh cracked down and i think even joe biden was like railing against ecstasy in the mid 90s in his sort of uh tough on crime era and so rick doblin had like a number of uh setbacks kind of related to that and in the early 2000s i think it's when he finally discovered like his golden ticket of respectability, which came uh, courtesy, I think, of uh, 9-11, which is, you know, there was a new war. There are tens of thousands of soldiers going to Iraq and Afghanistan who are going to come back with PTSD. And he realized that he could use the veteran population. I think he admitted this much, like later, that he could use the veteran population because they were like singularly the most sympathetic group that you could ever possibly imagine. Like women who need to recover from sexual assault. Uh, yeah, sure. They're sympathetic. I think that was his direct quote it was like, yeah, you know, women who survive sexual assault, like that's yeah, very sad right. and everything. But the veterans, like the, yeah. the heroes, you know, he like salivates when there's like a police officer and a veteran that like, you know, we can say we helped, you know, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. Yeah. And that's he when that began things about like, uh, another thing is like a lot of these people for whatever reason, are obsessed with uh they're like zionists basically yeah, and they're obsessed with that, israel yeah. um and he has made like a lot of statements about how like lsd would like or mdma i think probably is, is what he actually mentioned will like solve the uh israel palestine conflict you know by giving like people on both sides mdma like then they'll just understand it's like fuck you <laughs> like that's not <laughs> That's not yeah. the issue. Well, um, yeah, actually, just like, to, add, to add on to that, I think actually, if I recall, the first type of trial he did outside of the United States, because that's kind of where he had to look, um, I think in the 90s, was at, at a hospital in Nicaragua that was treating like victims of like the Nicaraguan Civil War. Which honestly, yes. it didn't specify if it was like victims of the Contras or like Contra veterans, you know, that he was like uh, basically uh, treating with MDMA. And that that was a brief study. But then he went on to make contacts with Israel and the IDF. And I think that was where he did his first military adjacent study. And I think the person who ran it was the former chief psychiatrist of the IDF. So, I mean... You know, we're yeah, really and that's like the thing. That's like a up. perfect example where you can see like the crossover, you know, like between like the weaponry implementation of drugs and like the psychological, you know, like helpful sort of spiritually uplifting, like the idea that like you're going to give drugs to like Gazans or Palestinians and then they're going to like feel peace and love towards Israelis. That's pure like psychological warfare it has nothing to do with like changing like an incredibly uh, like unjust and like uh violent reality it's all about changing like the perceptions of people that like somehow they're not the victims of this you know like and like so you can see like how these things bleed into each other like um yeah and relative uh relatedly to that like i feel like something that also came like uh more fully to our attention like after we had recorded those episodes was like the use of ukraine as like a psychedelic lab like as well like just around the time we released those episodes i was saying uh earlier um you know we had started to see things about like these like uh donation funded like spas for ukrainian volunteers and and fighters um and i I had thought even at the time like i wonder if they're using psychedelics in these i think i might have even texted you like to that effect Mm -hmm. but um 
you know, of course, like in the the months that have followed, like it's been confirmed like that. Yes. Like there are like psychedelic, like experimental trials and programs like happening. in. Ukraine. I, I, th- I think a symposium writer did a whole write up about how there was like a neo-Nazi Azov battalion member, like full of like, you know, like black sun face tattoos named Heathman. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he who went basically by Hitman. who was like promoted it was in Vincent Rado who uh-huh. did that article. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, if I recall correctly, this was Maps, right? That was associated with this, but they they yeah. like there were articles written about like Hitman and how Hitman had like healed by doing psychedelic therapy after fighting Russia, and I forget if you know was he healed of being a Nazi? I'm not sure, but I actually I don't think he was, um, and I I think. Did he die in action after that or something? But I mean, you, like, look at the picture of this guy, and it's like, okay, so you're getting <laughs> Ukrainian Nazis like psychedelics, like when they come back from the front lines, and this is like therapeutic. Like, oh, what could go wrong here, right? You know, and it just makes you think of like Adam Waffen and like those like you know satanic Nazi like terror cells that were doing like LSD rituals out in the forest which, you know, came out in court documents, that's what they were doing. So, you know, the whole idea that like, oh, you can't use um, maybe psychedelics to indoctrinate people, even like, say, a right wing, like military force or like right wing terrorists or something like that. Um, I think we had found one study from a German academic that talked about how like there was a guy who like took LSD nonstop for like a month or something like that and just watched like Hitler speeches like of videos of Hitler speeches on loop until he like convinced himself that Hitler was right about everything. There was some, there was some weird case where like that happened where, you know, just as you could maybe like influence somebody on acid to like not be a racist, um, you definitely could do the opposite. Right. So, you know, but they don't want to talk about, you know, the opposite side. Um, yes. And also, and to- I think that like these true, like, I mean, you definitely can like use it at, to change people's, perceptions and to even change like their ideas and, and beliefs like long term like it like in a sustained way like if you're applying in a sustained way like and you're also using other techniques to like manipulate their feelings like and manipulate their beliefs like you definitely can change their beliefs but i've you know most of the time like the change in beliefs like is not very significant and i feel like the most substantial one is that the person is enthusiastic about the drug it's not really like that their racism has disappeared. Like maybe if that's the goal, like perhaps, but I mean, I think one could say like that, even that, you know, obviously we're all anti-racism, you know, it's not good, but one can see like the slippery slope and the idea that like we should treat like social ills using these drugs and like we should trust like people like MAPS to administer them who yeah. so far have been like dismal failures well, like, that that actually gets to like the problem here that I think is like underexamined by the psychedelics community is that I think maybe it's possible to use psychedelics in a therapeutic setting to convince somebody, let's just say, to no longer be a racist. Now, I think maybe that's possible. What what I'll tell you what's not possible is that in an unkind of structured environment, if a neo Nazi takes LSD. He's going to the the LSD itself is going to like open his mind, man, and tell him like, bro, everybody's one. It's the one universe, bro. 
like you just have to love everybody i i guarantee you that is like not going to happen maybe once in a, a million times in a blue moon maybe randomly um but like there's nothing about a psychedelic drug itself that is going to de-radicalize or you know de-fascify somebody's mind but if you were to do it in a tightly controlled uh set and setting where it's like consciously the goal and especially maybe if you have some kind of like buy-in from the participant of like being willing to go along with it then you could see how somebody maybe could get like conditioned into adopting a new belief system but that involves an element of like if you want to be nice you call it guidance but you could also call it like coercion or grooming or conditioning or brainwashing in a way so then that's that is i think you know we talk all the time about mk ultra on our show and i know you're probably aware of a lot of it luke um and you know the the common canard from like sort of the normies or like the mainstream you know journalists or whatever is like well it existed but it didn't work you know like yeah. they gave lsd randomly to some people to see if it could mind control you in five minutes and it couldn't so it was a failure yeah it, like, it wasn't okay, yeah, like uh, a charm sure that... person spell from dnd or like you know so they're <laughs> literally they like all interests in like drugs at all as, that's like, such a uh, fucking misdirection yeah. of like what lsd could be used for because then if it's like if you just look at like the manson family even if you don't believe that they were like some kind of chaos op like he sure did seem to brainwash a bunch of young people by constantly giving them speed and and lsd and being like a charismatic guru figure and then we saw in the 70s like all these different kind of guru culty things so and then you know people wouldn't hesitate in the 70s to look at like the moonies and i think rightfully say uh that guy seems to be brainwashing people like that or scientology or something like that like that's a cult that brainwashes yeah. people but okay so if a or like cult, a pimp is yeah, like pimp. manipulating and abusing like you know these women, any street uh, pimp, Andrew Tate is like if Andrew he's like injecting them with heroin. I don't know if he did that. I mean, obviously he was a pimp uh, and a sex trafficker. But if someone like him were doing that, people would be yeah. like, yeah, that's bad. Even yeah, and even if it were MDMA, they would look at it askance. I think. But well, somehow, yeah, and, and, like, and not all of those types of people even use drugs to mind control people, right? Yeah, like they use other social and interpersonal manipulations, like basically, to to accomplish that. And so it's like, okay, if uh, if the Moonies could independently figure out how to brainwash people, and Charles Manson could figure it out, and every street pimp in Times Square, and you know, go down the list, like all these people, uh so okay they're all able to do it but like you know do using lsd as like an accelerant which like some of these people did do like you know what i mean like that's like there's a disconnect there where it's like oh lsd can't be used for mind control but then there's like all these cults that used lsd for mind control and i'm not yeah. and it clearly isn't like just a magic pill that immediately brainwashes you but at this point like a lot of them like the, even the like the normie sort of understanding of them is that they did have some intelligence connections oh, for yet sure. like yeah, somehow yeah. they didn't know mm. about it yeah like and lsd we all know had some intelligence connect like had massive intelligence connections yeah. that always get all these experiments of, like, minimized. With it, like dosing strangers with it like yeah trying to develop like a synthetic marijuana that would like control people's minds like even all these people who are now into this like admit this like you can read this on their own websites you know but yeah somehow we're supposed to believe that like was apparent to everybody 
like isn't true. I don't know. Like, uh, so in that it, sense, like that that tells me that they did figure out ways to manipulate people in MK Ultra because all of these things that were extensions of MK Ultra, like the whole like '60s San Francisco LSD counterculture, a lot of this new age shit, etc., like achieved those effects um, in various different little groups, like over time, and you know, so so clearly. LSD or other psychedelics could be used as kind of like an accelerant or an aid in manipulating people. And like e- even on a, on a larger national, on a larger mass scale than just like individual person to person. I think you saw that with like San Francisco in the summer of love when you just pass it out like candy and then everyone's in like this kind of festival environment and you have like Tim Leary and Allen Ginsberg running around kind of leading the whole show, you know, and guiding everybody, like being the shamans, essentially, uh, be, you know, you could look at like influencers today in like a similar way or like celebrities or all kinds of figures. And so like that potentiality is clearly there, I guess, is, yeah, is what I'm trying to say. And like listeners of my show and your guys' show, you know, anyone who's listening to this is basically going to be familiar with the fact that the whole 60s counterculture was, you know, in large, if not almost totally a psyop and that the CIA was definitely involved with it. And then if you look at groups like MAPS, I mean, these are just, you know, the, 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 the same people who were involved with that are involved with that, uh, involved with, you know, maps, you know, I mean, so it's not even like this is, it's, it's almost kind of like this. And I don't know, it's almost not like it's, this is like a, there's a real continuity, you know, between maps and that counterculture, you know? So, I mean, all the sus stuff that was going on, you know, and hate Ashbury and, you know, with the MK ultra experiments and the Manson family and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of these people who you still find who are pushing, you know, you know, the psychedelics as a cure all thing. I mean, they're just the people hanging around still and who are still in the public eye, you know, but I mean, it, there's like a direct continuity between these people. And, you know, Absolutely. like Doblin, you know, which is kind of how we got started on this whole, you know, uh, strain of thought is like a, a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of got taken in by all these, like these older, you know, luminaries, and became kind of were mostly like military people. Like I don't, I don't know if we talked about James Ketchum, uh, who was like known as like the counterculture colonel. Um, Worked at Edgewood Arsenal. He's the one who you mentioned the the synthetic THC that would just like knock you on your ass and like incapacitate you. He invented that at the Edgewood Arsenal. Yes. and then decades and, later was going to Burning Man with Sasha Shulgin and like hanging out with all these like burners, man. And, yeah, and you he know, was like a mentor tricky. of Doblin's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, here's um, a thought that I just yeah. had. Uh, this is like, you know, very speculative and sorry to interrupt, but it's like Burning Man, like the new acid test. <laughs> I've thought that it for years. It seems like it yeah. could be. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, one time tried to look was. into I feel like the acid test has gone like just been exported to the like the world at large it's like left the lab like you know yeah. it's not but, even but burning man burning i think man anymore particularly in like the the late 80s 90s 2000s it actually was when when sasha shogun was still alive and doing his thing i mean he went to burning man you know multiple times and i i remember hearing 
I forget where I either read it or like anecdotally somebody told me was that because I know that like going back to the early 2000s, like his 2C drugs were very popular at Burning Man, like 2CB, 2CI, mm-hmm. etc. And I think he he created like hundreds of compounds. And so I think he would bring them up to Burning Man and kind of like distribute them just like he would in the old days in the 60s. Right. And then, you know, like get feedback from people about like, you know, how much they like it and whatnot. And, you know, Luke, do you know where the first Burning Man was held? Actually, I no, I don't. I don't. This is a good one. Um, it was held, I believe, ooh, either 1985 or 1986 on Baker Beach in San Francisco, which is right in the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's right out on the edge, you know, the Pacific Ocean. It happens to be like it's up against kind of these very tall bluffs. Um, and at the top of those bluffs is uh, the Presidio Army Base. <laughs> where um, a certain lieutenant colonel slash satanic cult leader was stationed in 1985 and 1986. <laughs> hmm, I don't know. Uh, just interesting, you know, it just happens that like Aquino could just peek over the hill and see bur- see a huge, uh, you know, like burning fi- like figure, like a wicker man being set on fire and set smiled. <laughs> I'm sure you he know. loved it. Yeah, he yeah, probably I mean, there, suggested there's... it. He was like, have you seen the film The Wicker Man? <laughs> uh, it's a very accurate representation of old, uh, with an E, religion uh, <laughs> in the Anglo-Saxon sphere. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, an intriguing symbolic reference point. Uh, he would, he uh, would. I, yeah. I, I, I mean to look more into that and see if there's any real kind of connection between Aquino and Burning Man. But <laughs> I just always thought that was like an interesting synchronicity. And then, of course, you know, it went up to uh, the Nevada desert, that great, you know, proving ground of the U.S. military. Right. I mean, rural Nevada, <laughs> like it's, well, it's kind of perfect. There is a huge crossover between like what Aquino would be talking about somewhat fancifully, like um, in his idea of like mind war is like both sides of the war will work together to fight against the problem. And this will end uh, what like, you call like fizz war, you know, not mind war, which is and this would be violent and mind war would actually be peaceful, you know, get everyone to like agree about everything like. He never he didn't say that in his book, Mind War, like or in his white paper and then his subsequent books. But it's the same idea that a lot of the people who were involved in MK Ultra or in other like, you know, uh, experiments like in within the military to like Jim men who stare at goats, like the first Earth Battalion. Yeah, yeah, or simply James Ketchum's idea of like, you know, war without death, you know, we'll just Mm -hmm. release a gas that will like dissolve people's will to fight like the instruments are different. Like, you know, Aquino didn't seem to be as into like the drug angle of it, but like the, uh, the objective of like, you know, it's sort of the same crossover of like, can we develop like a mind based war that will like, you know, just be a purely ideological and mental and won't have to like, you know, ha- involve physical destruction and death. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, he is from, he, as we know, he's a San Francisco native with like deep Stanford eugenicist roots and all that stuff. So like, you know, even though he was like career military, like it, if there was anybody in the military that really would have been kind of dialed into this like new agey Esalen stuff, it probably would have been Michael Aquino in like the seventies and eighties. 
right? Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder. Uh, but we don't really know. It's all I don't know for sure. Yeah. But yeah, but I, I do think Burning Man is kind of a testing ground, uh, both for various drugs and like a culture testing ground as well. And I think the fact that so many Silicon Valley billionaires like have sort of made it a religion to go there and they're big VIP encampments every year. I don't know if they I don't know if it's kind of fallen off since COVID, but certainly throughout the 2010s, it was like you'd have the, the Google CEOs there. You'd have Elon Musk, like all these big shots, like it be, almost became like a networking thing for Silicon Valley. And I'm sure that probably had an influence on the amount of people in Silicon Valley that were like microdosing and stuff like that. Because, you know, if you've ever met a burner, uh, they're always like yearning to get back to the playa and like bring the playa home right, with them in yeah, some the playa, way when i was on the playa yeah you're yeah, right. yeah uh, many such cases in los angeles mm-hmm. and you know yeah. that that yearning to like you know keep kind of the vibe going all year round it, it's only natural and uh and yeah i mean i remember um like that old podcast uh uh, Gnostic media with Jan Irvin, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. who, you know, uh, provided some early clues to us in terms of like the Grateful Dead and stuff. But I, I don't quite ride with uh, all of his like conclusions. But he had that one guy, I think, uh, was it, I want to Steve Outram, maybe it was like an Australian guy who ran a burner like forum, I think burners.me. But he was oddly like suspicious of Burning Man, but like he ran the biggest burning man form i don't know it was weird but i think i remember years ago him saying that like he met like military contractors at burning man who were like kind of testing out new sort of drone surveillance technology like they were taking it out to the playa and just flying yeah, it around because they're like, like an engineering aspect of burning man too like it really that's true yeah over. yeah building yeah. building all the little cars and the structures mm-hmm. and stuff and then burning it all down yeah yeah no there there is an aspect yeah, it's a great that. spot for like a drone based war game uh to be played out um if you weren't using it, it it's got kind of sri like skunk works vibes to it like come to uh-huh. the open desert and you know just build whatever you comes to your mind and while yeah. you're tripping balls on 2cb exactly you know? yeah so you gotta yeah, find I a way a to lot. find the people who didn't make it into the gifted kids program so that's like the <laughs> next step um yeah yeah, yeah exactly no, that that's that's very interesting. That was just kind of a random thought that I had, but and that's also very interesting where the first Burning Man was. Like uh, Woodstock '99 was like in a decommissioned like Air Force base, like yeah, mm-hmm. you know. So like a lot of these like totally big up. events take place at like you know very sus locales and can uh, make one's mind kind of wander. Um, one last question I have about uh, uh, Doblin. Um, is uh, you you talk in the series about his connections to the Rockefellers and just kind of how the Rockefellers are also very, you know, kind of interested in this whole psychedelic milieu, which I found very interesting. Oh, yeah. 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 That was something I actually didn't know until we were researching it. And um, I guess it was Dr. Richard Rockefeller, um, who I believe was a son of David Rockefeller, who was a doctor, but became very, very interested in MDMA therapy 
in uh, particularly in like the early 2010s. And then I think he died in a private plane crash. Uh oh, sus. Um, and a tiny little plane crash in I want to say 2014. And after that, Doblin kind of came out and said that oh, actually Richard Rockefeller was much more passionately involved in maps and supporting us than he kind of let on. I think they had exchanged something like some ridiculous amount of emails, like 80,000 emails or something like that. They had like exchanged over the years with each other. Um, and so like that's definitely one point. There's another Rockefeller heir, a younger one, I think named Alan Rockefeller, who uh, is like a professional mycologist and basically like travels around the world to exotic locales taking pictures and collecting samples of various psychedelic mushrooms. And um, I had clocked it on like some of the maps articles on their website. They were using like close up photos of mushrooms that were credited to Alan Rockefeller. So I'm like, Oh, okay. He's, he's, he must be in contact with them. Um, and then the kind of the, the most sus and nebulous thing is um, when I talked about my experience about a decade ago, um, with a Peruvian shaman in Los Angeles, uh, who I called Gustavo, um, people in the group where I was uh, doing ayahuasca with them uh, sort of like let slip at some point that, oh, you know, like Gustavo does ayahuasca journeys with the Rockefellers. Like he goes to their, you know, their island uh, farm out in. I don't know, it's Hawaii or somewhere else, but like they fly him out to like their estates and they all do ayahuasca. Like they all are about it. And I remember because I was like so much younger back then. It was kind of like, oh, that's crazy. Wow. Like the Rockefellers. Huh? I guess like, you know, people that are like five generations of wealth like that deep kind of um, don't even care about business anymore and just want to like trip out and you know, so it, it was always in the back of my head. But then kind of when I got a little more noited and I started reading about like the true nature of like the Rockefeller dynasty and how they've had their fingers in so much shit in the 20th century. And then even when we were kind of doing various episodes of SJ, learning about Lawrence Rockefeller, because it turns out this is not like a new thing. Lawrence Rockefeller was like, obsessed with new age shit, psychedelic drugs, UFOs. He was one of the big funders of MUFON actually in the nineties, like, you know, if you want to talk about like, is the whole UFO thing kind of a psyop? Well, a lot of it, you know, going back decades now has been bankrolled by like Lawrence Rockefeller to what end? I'm not sure. But, um, he was also one of the earliest venture capitalists to pour a lot of money into Silicon Valley going back to like the late 1940s. And, um, and so I don't know if it's like mostly his children, but apparently David Rockefeller's children are were very much into all of this like psychedelic stuff. And and so, yeah, I think that um, I think the Rockefellers uh, as to, you know, what the end game is, is that just bourgeois escapism, maybe on some level, but also the fact that they're promoting it so hard, you know, gets my like sus radar going a little bit. And I don't know. Uh, I, I think the Rockefellers, they're an interesting example because they really personify like the the high Gilded Age American bourgeoisie kind of robber baron family that then pivots into like social engineering as a as a means to kind of maintain its power. Or I mean, 
I don't even know if I want to say it's like it's power like over America, but I feel like they are sitting in like the board of directors meeting of whatever group of like sus ghouls like really call the shots in this country to a large degree. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they're they're like a card carrying member of like the people who run shit. And I think you saw them kind of take their portfolio like other groups, like other families did in the 20th century, moving from hard business and, you know, heavy industry and like oil and things like that. Uh, well, first, maybe moving into finance. That's always the first step. But then from there, moving into like running modern art museums. And then like they were kind of involved in that cultural Cold War op of promoting abstract expressionism, which is kind of an obscure art movement and like basically imbuing it with a context that would make it like a weapon against the Soviets. And um and then also like dabbling in this kind of counter new age counterculture shit, like, you know, psychedelics research, UFOs, things like that. And, um, and, and kind of, you know, flexing their influence in more indirect ways on our culture. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess I hope that, like that makes sense. When you, yeah, yeah, no, it definitely does. And I suppose if you like already have, you know, pretty much taken over industry and finance and stuff like that, then the next frontier is kind of, you know, uh, to try and dominate the culture and, you know, change, you know, people's perceptions at that level. Not that there's, you know, not a relationship between all of those, all of those things, you know, but I guess that there's kind of a natural progression from one to the other. So, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, so yeah also a lot of their money earns itself that's something about like uh that i think it's worth clarifying about these like very high bourgeois people from families that own like big industrial companies is like they usually do kind of like give up ownership they all get kendall Royd after like two or three generations you know and but that doesn't mean they lose their money or their clout or their power right uh they still have the the money is handled by professional managers and invested in you know mutual funds and trusts and things like that and is almost like recession proof and you know unless they really go off the rails and blow it in like a Nicolas Cage kind of way that money is going to be there for generations and so it's like yeah it's like almost like they don't need to concern themselves like why the fuck would they go to business school like they can they can study art you know like so um so yeah yeah I think that like uh, they still have, like they they still have plenty of money, but but also you know, being a family for hundreds of years like that and maintaining that social prestige, like eventually you can't just be a Daniel Plainview, right? You have to sponsor the arts and sciences and do great things, you know, and and launder your your reputation, right? And so maybe psychedelics is like you know now they're gonna you know they're gonna be the beneficent you know uh, bourgeois overlords that are going to guide us to a new better world right well yeah like a lot of these it seems like it's a strategy that like a lot of these same types of like sort of new age like 60s counterculture like adjacent subcultures use right like again i'd make the parallel with ufos like because of the influence that people like jacques Vallée like still have there and like the way that the current people have taken up the torch of uh, older influencers like in that space like 
definitely there's been debate about how to do it. Like, for instance, like in psychedelics, like you see like Timothy Leary, like saying like, well, we, you know, famously, like he thought that the best thing to do was to get all the kids like turned on to LSD. And then when they got older, like it wouldn't matter what like the older conservative people thought, which panned out to an extent, like uh, maybe not as much as he thought, but it seems like certainly recently and to a larger extent, like what's been more successful uh, and what people have pursued is like a, like mold bug teal like dark elf strategy of like picking like certain influential like powerful people and like getting them on board so that Mm -hmm. they can be evangelists for this um and that's like the model of cultural change that these people are always following is like pick certain people like get to them and then like flip them into being evangelists for this like you know, and you know, you know what that's always Harry, been gabor mate <laughs> right a gabor mate that's another yeah a hot potato we, like we found on. like that even like zippy whatever zappy, zappy. zappy yeah zappy was saying like i think it would be so great if you got someone like prince harry to go on tv and talk about all his experiences doing psychedelics like it would be so transformative and like somehow such that event like was arranged and like actually happened you know because it's deliberate it's a deliberate thing um yeah and yeah gabar mate interviewed prince harry about like his like the benefits of using you know psychedelics and how they've they're an important part of his life and so i mean i i laughed when i saw zampi say that that like imagine if because i think it's before that thing came out he was like, yeah, imagine if like Prince Harry, you know, took psychedelics. I'm like, you dumb motherfucker. Like, you don't think Prince Harry has fucking taken shrooms? Like, come yeah. on. He's a rich kid. Like, come on. And, and that, that I mean, that is a thing that I noticed when I was in that like ayahuasca group was it was kind of pitched to me like that. Like, look, no, the reason all these like rich people have been assholes and uh, evil for like, you know, all of history up until right now is because like they never took LSD. So they're just stuck in like a narrow, like lower level of consciousness about personal accumulation. But as soon as they, you know, open up their mind, like they're going to dedicate their life to making the world a better place. And it actually makes me think about something I'd forgotten. We might've mentioned it briefly in our Bohemian Grove episode, but I'm pretty sure in the 1970s, a lot of these young Rockefeller heirs, like the boomer ones, were going off to college. They're, they're going off to woke university and they were uh, getting like Marx pilled. They were becoming like heckin' Maoists or at least um, posturing as heckin' Maoists like for a while and being, you know, very much like. I don't want to associate with any of like fucking bourgeois wealth. Like this is evil. Like I don't want to yeah. have anything to do with it and stuff. And I've always thought mm-hmm. this um, one day we're going to get around to doing a, probably a multi-part episode about Patty Hearst, another heiress, uh, another heck and Maoist uh, American heiress uh, from the Bay area who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that whole SLA saga. And I think I've like speculated before that like, was the Patty Hearst kidnapping kind of like, a warning to like all the other little like bourgeois Maoist kids. So like, this is what's going to happen to you if you start flirting with like left wing, you know, politics too hard and like, you know, publicly renouncing like your family name and all that shit. You're going to get kidnapped by like some MK ultra, like Phoenix group that is going to like brainwash you and et cetera, et cetera. So it makes me actually kind of wonder if like, you know, it's possible that, you know, these Rockefeller kids were, taking LSD at like 14, like Bobby Kennedy Jr. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe it's interesting that 
maybe some of those same kids were like getting kind of like Marx pilled in the seventies. But today, what are they all about? Like they're all about promoting psychedelics. And so that almost harkens back to like the, what we suspect might be like a purpose of the, of the sixties in the first place, which was to take like this kind of radical energy um, with young people and just like you know, disrupt it a little bit, like literally, de- like derail funnel it. it into like a business that is basically indistinguishable from like shilling alcohol, <laughs> like for yeah. all intents and purposes. But like, but it would still while giving you the feeling that you're changing the world, man. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, if you look at the Grateful like, Dead, like like the whole every the whole culture of mythos around the Grateful Dead kind of embodies that, and just like. Yeah, I mean, the, the trajectory of the boomer generation embodies that. And so I wonder, you know, even against the bourgeois, you know, uh, children, like, you know, w- was uh, did somebody make sure to influence them in the right way to make them just like full on psychedelics heads and like new age kind of weirdos who were going to like drop all that politics nonsense? You know, um, I'm sure they still, you know, give out political money, but, you know, drop all that 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 hateful lower vibrational like anti-imperialism like come on you know we need to move beyond that right and uh and and instead endorse some like weird like uh like wef like fabian like pseudo socialist uh you know like globalist uh nightmare or something like well, that wherever yeah and also the like there's just a magic pill for everything because like if we just if people just took lsd like I, you know, you were mentioning like, does it ever make anyone not like a white supremacist or whatever? And like, I remember just seeing like fairly recently, like people tagging us like in this article about like a like a, a like someone who participated in that unite the white uh, the unite the well you know unite the right rally uh, in Charlottesville, you know that famous like thing. Um, and I guess he like you know uh, got exposed by some like antifa infiltrator, and then he lost like all his friends, lost his job. And then, like, there's this thing where it's, like, he decided to take part in an MDMA trial. And then, like, he realized, like, the error of his ways. And it's, like, you know, people say, like, oh, he magically took MDMA and it changed his mind. And it's, like, if you actually, like, read it, first of all, like, he probably wanted to back, you know, probably was wanting to get back to, like, his family and friends. Like, you know, he was from a place of openness to begin with, I'm sure. And also, like, you know, I, like, read about it and it's, like... You know, he's continually like working with the Antifa like uh, infiltrator to like, you know, deprogram him of like his beliefs, you know, Mm -hmm. over like many, many years. Um, And like, but, you know, people just like kind of read like the headlines of this or like just see like this one like sort of example that isn't really even a true uh, instance of this. And then they believe that like this is going to magically cure depression it's magically gonna stop you know it's it's gonna like solve geopolitical problems like you know it like it seems like something that adults like or older adults wouldn't be liable to buy into but they do with like shocking regularity and i think certainly like younger people do and then yeah that like period of time when they could be like you know developing skills to actually make like a political change like in their society like they're just spending it like being like soft-headed and like stoned and like imagining what could be you know like whatever um mm-hmm. and yeah it's, it's easy uh, to see why that would be appealing in to, in like this decade in america specifically when it feels like 
everything is inexorably getting worse and there is like no there's no political force kind of on the horizon that seems even remotely capable of you know reversing that trend like there's you know a bad moon rising and you know but just between all the yeah the truth is that people just want to disengage and like not pay attention and ignore everything and just like take whatever drugs they need to to like feel okay and everyone uh, knows like democracy is, is going like, to actually have some kind of meaningful political effect you know yeah that, that's just um, yeah it's like that's cope that's a marketing gimmick basically that yeah it's gonna like get rid of uh to like crudely paraphrase uh you know maxim gorky like if you you know just forcibly dose everybody in lsd like fascism will be gone in 10 years um that's not what he said. He said something more problematic. But um, uh, what did Maxim Gorky say that was? I think he said if you outlawed homosexuality, fascism would. Oh, all right. <laughs> not, wow. the, not the best Spicy prediction, quote. but uh, um, but but it is that kind of like very confident thinking of you know, like yeah, if we just dosed uh, well, Putler and drums uh, and you know, like everyone would the, get together and. <laughs> Yeah. Well, one of the things that came up on our episode that I think was like so illuminating was like how this like discourse of medicalization has existed for so long. But like the idea of what's like a mental illness has changed so much because like earlier people, even like Timothy Leary, you know, like very, very enthusiastically and like with great like, you know, verve and like gusto was pushing the idea that LSD would cure homosexuality. Right. And it was being used in that way. Right. Like people like in addition to like electroshock and all these treatments that people like, you know, have heard about or like seen depicted like you know, being used to try to cure or treat homosexuality like during that time, like LSD was also used. And in fact, it was promoted for that purpose. Like mm-hmm. that's another thing that I feel like is key to like the sus psychedelics picture is like how big of a deal like sex was like for these people. Like it was a big part of it. Like I think Timothy Leary has some quotes like it's you know, it would really horrify people like, you know, if they knew that this was a fundamentally sexual experience. Like I've had mm-hmm. sex every single time I've ever taken LSD and like a woman <laughs> will have like five zillion orgasms whenever she takes it and it will make her fall in love with you instantly. And like, you know, if you give it to a lesbian, she'll become straight. If you give it yep. to a gay man, he'll become straight. Like, you know, because yep. it aligns their chakras with their natural, you know, gender, <laughs> whatever, like some fucking shit like that, you know, like some crap. But that's like it's like the goal is the same, which is like, get this mainstream, get people to adopt it, get them to say it's scientific, get them to say it's medicine. But like the strategy changes, like, and that like is something that exposes how disingenuous it really is because like, it's just, and now it's like, oh, racism is a mental illness. So we can cure that with like these things, you know? Um, And it's like, well, um, it's really the, it's like the, I get why the the old psychedelics heads uh, tend to be pissed off at this because it's really like reducing these drugs that we still don't, I mean, like many drugs, we don't fully understand how it works. Um, but they're like putting it into this like Prozac box of like a thing that you're going to take every day until you die, which is yeah, obviously... Yeah, literally Elon Musk takes ketamine as Prozac while like being dismissive of ssris probably like he probably no he is yeah i mean he says that it has worse and you know he might have a point because like ssris like yeah like what the fuck are those you know like well that's the thing like i like you know if someone is being reasonable and like it's like oh you know here's my critiques of ssris like blah 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 like you know they were rushed like you know the, the, the studies show that they don't have like the results that they are promised blah 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 
But what's so bizarre to me is that you see the same, like, for instance, someone mentioned Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, you know, I, I recall very vividly Joe Rogan being like, you know, I don't trust the COVID vaccine, right? I'm taking ivermectin, you know, like these these things were rushed out to market, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, if you're taking a principled stand against that, like, I could understand it if you're also, like, apply the same standard to these drugs that you, like, continually proselytize for. Like, it's yeah. literally the exact same thing. Like, all of a sudden, like, the FDA, like, you know, oh, the FDA, like, approving of something doesn't, like, matter. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's reasonable to, like, be, cr- especially, like, yeah, under yeah. pressure from, oh, yeah, like, yeah. you know, groups with a certain investment in uh, a drug, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, re- you know, the FDA definitely has, it's definitely not true. The FDA has never approved something that was bad. So, okay, like, I, that's at least a fair metric. But then all of a sudden, like, you know... Uh, it's just the endless evangelism like for this and just like totally like total blindness to like any of the uh, negative aspects of it or even like consideration of that. Like, yeah, that's a good you point. Know. Like you wish they could stay vigilant across the board, but and then like on the other side, like, I don't know, you have, uh, yeah, like the, the trust the science impulse when it benefits like people should be able to recognize when somebody stands to make like an absolute shit ton mountain of money that you know you should proceed with like uh like not faster than normal like with caution or whatever and like not be totally outraged if you know somebody brings up that you know somebody's personal interest might be at play and like you know but they can't they could do that uh yeah, they could do that yeah, with Pfizer, but they can't trials, do that with like, Rick Doblin. Out, like back to the drawing board, don't like try to spin it into this like you know unqualified success, like because yeah, like they really they they were doing kind of the same like Fauci thing, like Rick Doblin, like when you bring up like uh, oh these results are actually kind of inconclusive, and like oh also like you're one of your best friends, and like a Maps co-founder like sexually assaulted this woman in one of your trials, and like yeah, well you know like uh, nothing's perfect, but. You know, uh, but still, no, 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 it's it's really strong. It's really strong. But then privately, they admit that, like, they need, you know, basically, they just they just need the science to catch up to where they are already. And like, it's it's clearly a means to an end. That's exactly how it works. Right. And the science like will catch up to where they are, because science is unfortunately not like this magical objective thing. It's simply like methods that people apply and can be applied and it can be like shaped to create like certain results like uh and it can be like represented at things can be represented as like scientifically proven like discursively that you know maybe uh there could be another interpretation of um that would also be uh representable as scientific for sure um yeah
I tore my mind on a jagged sky. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. In a deep dark hole And then I followed it in I watched myself crawling out As I was crawling in I got up so tight I couldn't unwind I saw so much I broke my mind I just dropped in To see what condition My condition was in See what condition my condition was in. Yeah. 